0: And I'll invite you to turn to Luke chapter 9. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 866, 867. Uh, Again, we've been looking at these verses, at these passages for the last several weeks, and we'll do that again this week. And um, to help us to kind of remind ourselves of where we are, I will go ahead and Start reading in, verses, in verse 28. Again, we've looked at verses 28 through 45 these last weeks, um, but I think it will be helpful to um, set our hearts to receive the portion that's new to us today in verses 46 to 48. Um, let's turn our attention again to the reading of God's holy, living, and inerrant word. Luke writes, saying, Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter, John, and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men who were were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but they became fully awake when they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the man were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it shatters him, and will hardly leave him. I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed for them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And then our new verses for today. And then an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is God's word for you today. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for your enduring word, these enduring truths, your enduring glory. And Lord, what seems like our enduring foolishness at times, Lord, through your enduring spirit, reveal to us that which you would from this portion of your word. And change us because of that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as I begin my message today, I want to acknowledge that this is a little bit less of an expositional sermon as what I typically preach. It's not exactly a deep dive into verses 46 and 48. But I pray that you'll give me that latitude this morning. Um, I've entitled this passage, my sermon, A Call to Humility and Proper Gospel Grasping. Because I think that's what Christ is encouraging in this passage. He's, he's calling his disciples and he's calling us too through his word and spirit. He's calling his disciples and he's calling us to humility. And he's calling them and he's calling us to seek to perceive well. And he's doing that because oftentimes we don't perceive well. We often don't grasp well. We often don't understand. We might think that we do, but oftentimes we don't. I mean, think about it. How clueless are these disciples? Jesus had told them in verse 44 that that he was about to be delivered into the hands of sinful men. Now, I acknowledge that the text in in verse 45 says that that they weren't able to really perceive what this meant when Christ told them that. But that wasn't the first and only time that Jesus had spoken words like this to them. Look at verse 23, if you would. And there Jesus tells the disciples just a bit earlier, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And even if... Christ hadn't told them this. You would think that at least the three, the three who had just been humbled by seeing this display of glory in the transfiguration would have seen how much more glorious Jesus is and that they would not have been grasping for glory for themselves. And the rest of them even, as as the majesty of God had been displayed through Christ's work, through delivering that young boy from the demon. That had tormented him so. They also should have been humbled by their recent failure. Remember, they weren't able to cast the demon out of that boy. And that happened even though if you look at verse 1 of of Luke 9. Christ had given them the authority to do that very thing. To drive out demons. But they couldn't do that in this case. And to their failure, Christ rebukes them, saying, O faithless and twisted generation, how long must I bear with you? And as I mentioned last week, I'm persuaded that that Christ was saying this. He was saying that as a rebuke of the disciples and not necessarily the crowd. I say that because in, in Matthew's account of this event, Christ tells the disciples that they weren't, be able, they weren't able to cast out the demons because of their little faith. And when Mark writes about it, he says that Christ tells them that it was because of their lack of prayerlessness. That it's only with much prayer that a demon like this can be cast out. So what's the proper response to all of their failure? to all of their lack of understanding, but of course, sinful pride. They want to grasp at wanting to be seen as being the most important. They want to grasp at being seen as being the most wonderful and the most deserving of recognition and of prestige. Luke writing, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But you know, the disciples aren't the only ones who sometimes don't get it. We can do the same. And that's why the Lord gives us scriptures like Proverbs 28:26. "Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool." Romans 12:16. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Don't think too highly of yourself, Scripture tells us. We often don't fully understand. Just like the disciples didn't fully understand here. And we, like them, we can often grasp for the wrong thing. Sometimes that might be worldly things like the disciples were doing here. They wanted prestige, they wanted recognition, maybe even power in the kingdom to come. Or sometimes we may strive after wealth, or the house, or the super-duty Ford 350 pickup truck. Not that I would know anything about that. Sometimes we we might strive for fleshly things, the, the girl or the guy, that forbidden Pleasure or that high or or relief from that pain that we feel. Sometimes, rather than grasping for Christ, we may grasp onto familiar things, lesser things. Maybe that's that indwelling sin that has such a hold of us, it seems, that we, we give in so frequently, so mindlessly, so readily. Maybe we hang on to, we we grasp, we give ourselves over to that anxiety or bitterness or unbelief. Or maybe it's just about being lazy and engaging in prayer and Bible reading and the other spiritual disciplines. What should we grasp? Well, in our story, to make his point, Jesus grasped. A child, if you will. Verses 47 and 48. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put it by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. What should we grasp? We should grasp our weakness. We we should grasp, we should recognize, we should acknowledge our sinfulness. We we should grasp, we should should embrace and confess the the spiritual truths about who we are and about who God is. We should should respond like Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. We should grasp the spiritual and biblical truths that God is holy and we are not in and of ourselves. And that we can only stand in his presence If he takes away our sin, if he provides atonement for our sins, what should we grasp? We should grasp, we should cling to the one who first grasps a hold of us, the Lord God. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me first draws him. Even that verse is a call to humility. If you've grasped your need, if you've grasped the spiritual reality that you're a sinner, justly deserving God's displeasure and wrath because of your sinfulness, but if you've grasped onto the biblical declaration that Jesus Christ came to save sinners like you and me, then that the right response is not that of a sinful, pharisaic, self-righteous pridefulness... But if you grasp that the proper response is of grasping the fact that you've done nothing to merit God saving you, but he did that out of his sheer unmerited grace, the proper response to all of that is humility and gratitude. In love, God saves you. God saves those who are willing to humble themselves before him. And then he grasped a hold of us. John 10, verses 27 through 29. Jesus saying, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. And my father, who is greater than all, um, has given them to me. And no one is able to snatch them out of his hands. The Father and the Son holding you safely, securely, eternally, safe in his grasp. Here I'm reminded of that wonderful quote by Charles Spurgeon. I think maybe did I include it in your outline or did I not? Oh, did I not? I'm sorry. Um... Spurgeon says this, It's the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from ourselves and onto Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this. For he's constantly trying to make us focus ourselves upon ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates, Your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You will never be able to continue to the end. You have such a wavering hold of Jesus, says Satan. Then Spurgeon says, all these thoughts are about yourself, and we will never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from oneself. He rightly tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is all in all. Remember, therefore, that it is not your hold of Christ that saves you, It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even your faith in Christ, though that is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits that saves you. Therefore, look not so much to your hand with which you are grasping Christ, but look to Christ. Look not to your hope, but to Jesus, the source of your hope. Look not to your faith, but to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. We will never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. Keep your eyes simply on him. Let his death his sufferings, his merits, his glories, his intercession, be fresh upon your mind. When you wake in the morning, look to him. When you lie down at night, look to him. Oh, let not your hopes or fears come between you and Jesus. Follow hard after him, for he will never fail you. And Amy, maybe you can send that quote out when you send worship out. It is on there. Okay, all right. Friends, do not trust in yourself, but trust in the one who has grasped onto you. Reach out your hands of faith and grasp onto the one who once grasped onto a cross in order to save you and pull you from the clutches of the evil one. We should grasp the one who refused to grasp that which he deserved, who, again, as we've been reminded several times this morning, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. But he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient even to death, even death on the cross. And we grasp the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, even you, if you would reach out the empty hand of faith and receive the gift that he offers to you. And friends, this one who came not to be served, but to serve, this one who came in humility, this one who came in obedience, This one who came and humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. That's what we see shown forth in this meal that's set before us today. In this table, we see the humility of the glorious one. We see the humility of Jesus Christ on display. We see the humility of the one who did not grasp or or hold on to or insist upon his rights and privileges that were rightly his as being the eternal um, God the Son, equal with the Father. But in the table, we see the one who is willing to lay that all aside. We see the one who humbled himself to the point of death in his joyful service to redeem you. We should grasp the one who on the night that he was betrayed, on the night... Before he would go to the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and my sin, we should grasp a hold of the ones who set his clothing aside and grasped a towel and wrapped it around his waist and grasped also a wash basin. And though he was the master, he went and he knelt down before every one of his disciples and washed their feet. John tells us in John 13, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place and he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It's that upside-down nature of the kingdom that the least is first. And on this day when we have our congregational meeting, various people will stand and give reports on ministries for which they have responsibility. On this day, elders, as you serve communion um, to the people of Newport Church, for you all, for us all, may we do that always in a spirit of humility. Um, As you serve elders, deacon, ministry leaders, brothers and sisters in Christ, as you serve in any capacity here at Newport Church, do that in a spirit of humility. Recognizing that you serve the one who is great. It is not you who is great, but you serve the one who is great. You and I are not the point, but we are to be pointers to the one who is the majestic one. We do that also, elders, as you take the cup, as you take the bread. Again, you do not do that because of your great spiritual insight, but rather let's do that in a spirit of how we are hungry beggars who have found food, who have received the gift of food from the hand of the king, and that we now, after having first received that, we joyfully go out to others and we share that which we have received with others who are also hungry for the bread of life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the bread of life. You are the glorious one. And yet you are the one who is willing to leave your father's side. To enter into this life. To enter into the cesspool of the world, if you would. To enter even into what sometimes is the filth of our lives. And you did that so that we would not be filthy any longer. Um, Lord, we love you. We praise you for who you are, for what you have done. Um, Lord, keep us close to you. Hold us tight in your grip make up for the weakness of our grasp that holds on to you and hold us securely in your eternal love. Lord, in just a few minutes, we'll celebrate this meal, um, this meal that shows forth your humility, your obedience to the point of death. We pray, Lord, that you will take these common elements of bread and juice and wine and set them apart for your holy purposes. We pray this in your name. Amen.